Welcome. We are in our series, Titus. Uh, so we've been walking through uh, Paul's letter to this man named Titus, who functionally is a church planner in the island of Crete. And so uh, we've been seeing what, what God would have us do. And the theme that we've seen uh, pervasive throughout the entire book is this idea that God has called us to do good works and that our lives should be a song of good works. And so uh, meet me if you have your Bibles, or it'll be on the screen in chapter 3. Um, Titus is a fascinating book, um, again, because of this church planner uh, idea here. And so Titus is putting to order the last things uh, before he is sent away and someone else takes his place. And so it's, it is fascinating as we look at these things in chapter 3 um, in relation to the brook. Because I think as we've come off this church planting uh, honeymoon, so to speak, uh, this this now we're year four, I believe, or five, going to five. Yes, no, okay, I should know that. And so um, it is a fascinating time. And so these are kind of Paul's last things to Titus. Do this before we continue. And so uh, chapter three, we start in verse one. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. I'm so glad today that I don't have to teach you all or say anything new per se, that my, my job today, my, my mission today is to remind you of things that you already know and things that are apparent to you. And so often, um, especially among new believers, we try to find out these new things and often uh, we just need to be reminded of the truths that we've already believed, the truths that we, we've come to know and love. And and just hold on to those things. So that being said, Paul's urging Titus to tell the churches there, the, the believers, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. You know, the idea here is that Christians are to be submissive to those above us. That says several things. One, that you have to recognize there are people above you, that there is authority, whether you're in your work job, you have a boss, maybe. Whether it's at home, you have a husband. Maybe you are in church, you have an elder, you have a pastor, someone above you. That being said, also, as citizens of the government, we have an authority. We have a government that God has placed above us. Paul is very clear in at least Romans 13 that as Christians, we are called to live as civil citizens to the government that God has placed and so here we're to be obedient and, and to be submissive to rulers and authorities. And when you track through submission in the New Testament, submission is less about being quiet and keeping your mouth closed than it is to say something loudly through one's actions about who God is. Let me say that again. Submission is less than about being quiet and more about speaking loudly through one's actions about who God is. When we are submissive to authorities, we are speaking loudly about who God is. God is ruler, he is supreme, he deserves our obedience, and we show that through submission of governments and authorities. Now, what is at stake when we decide that I don't wanna be submissive? I don't want to be subordinate to, uh, insubordinate rather, to a ruler or an authority. Well, in Titus alone, we see that insubordination, 
can upset whole families. That's Titus 1.10. We see that the word of God could be despised. That's Titus 2.5. And then the doctrine of God our Savior is not adorned, according to Titus 2.10. Uh, and so there's a lot at stake when it comes to submission in the New Testament. We want to speak loudly of the greatness and beauty and unholiness of who God is. Now, as I wrestled through this, I know that it is a very trying time uh, in our society, as our, in our country, as a whole. And so the question comes up, what about corrupt authority? What about those authorities that abuse their power at the, that's the cost of others, at the cost of the weak? And so it's a very uh, sensitive area. It's a very area that I don't think you're going to fill up all the answers here in this moment, but here's what I would say. Insofar as authority does not prohibit us from loving God and our neighbor, we should be submissive. Let me say that again. Insofar as the authority does not prohibit us from loving God and our neighbor, we should be submissive. God has called us to be civil citizens. We should be submissive to love God and our neighbor together. Uh, that being said, we should also speak out against injustices given the opportunity and the freedom, especially in a country where you are given the right by said authority to do so. You are called to defend the weak. You are called to submit to authority. Those things are not contrary to each other. They are not opposed to each other. It is your job to be a civil citizen of Christ. Namely, because this idea here is that God has called us to respond to others with the same grace he has shown us. That is the, the, the idea of verses 1 and 2. That God has called us to respond to others with the same grace he has shown us. You are speaking volumes about who God is when you submit to those authorities. Now, in the narrative of the Gospels, I think there's a great example that is beautiful and it's very subtle. Um, you know, when Jesus, our Lord, is being uh, tried and condemned for uh, for being really a righteous person, for being doing nothing wrong, there's this small verse in Luke uh, 23, verse 26. It says this, and as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid him on the cross to carry behind Jesus. It is, it's, it's just a small verse. That's all it says. Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid him on the cross, uh, laid on him the cross, I'm sorry, to carry it behind Jesus. So you have Simon carrying the cross for the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we see from Simon's response is a submission to the Roman authority and yet at the same time joining in God's work for the ultimate redemption of people. So it's fascinating because Simon has options. Simon can protest. This is wrong. This is, this is the Lord Jesus Christ. He should not be tried like this and have nothing to separate himself and from this tragic injustice that is happening to Jesus. He can protest. He can be outright loud and, and, and try to change the narrative. But 
his response is a submission to the Roman soldiers who, in another gospel, says they persuaded him, uh, which I find kind of uh, funny, to carry the cross. He submits the government and at the same time joins in God's ultimate mission to redeem people. Your calling in life is to be on mission, and it does not, uh, in submitting to government and authorities, is part of that calling. It's part of that mission. To accomplish God's mission, we should submit to authority. Let's continue. We see here, uh, to be ready for every good work. That's verse 1. To be ready. This idea of ready is to be already prepared. My question to you today is, are you prepared for good works? How do you prepare for good works? How are you ready? How are you ready to bless and be a blessing to others and those around you? in life, in your day-to-day. Too often we, we think that blessing is confined to maybe a Sunday. We should, uh, now is our time to try to love each other, maybe go out to eat or whatever. How are we prepared to do good works throughout our lives, throughout our weeks? Be ready. Verse 2 says, to speak evil of no one. Literally, the idea there is to blaspheme no one. Your tongue is the... The, the ship steer of life. You need to be extremely careful how you address other people, those in room and out of room, those uh, that are present and not present. Do not speak evil of no one. To avoid quarreling, that is literally to be peaceful. Are you a peaceful person? God has called you to be a peaceful person. To be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. And the great idea here. Uh, is that as Christian believers, we are constantly pouring out kindness to all kinds of people, to all people everywhere. We are not limited to a certain people who think like we do. We are not limited to those people that look like us. We are not limited to those who are kind to us. No, according to the scriptures, good works cause us to be kind and to show perfect courtesy, courtesy to all people everywhere. That's what the scripture calls us to do. And so, again, God has called us to respond to others with the same grace he has shown us. Do you recognize that grace? God has treated you so well, go out and treat others well. Your life is a testimony to God's goodness. Verse 3 says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. I don't know if you know this, but when the scriptures describe your life prior to Jesus Christ, they're not very optimistic. They don't say a whole lot of, uh, you had a lot going on that was great, you just need a little fixing here and there. Now, the scriptures are very clear that prior to Christ, you were, in one way, a wretch. You were, in one way, hated by others and hating one another. You, you are a, a cistern of evil and malice. They are not optimistic. When you think about your conversion or your salvation... What is it you think about prior to Christ? Did Christ come to just 
fix a little couple things in your life? Did Christ come to adjust things that were happening around you that were wrong? Or did Christ save you from the inside out, from a passion, uh, from slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing your days in malice and envy? It is a beautiful thing when people recognize that transformation. So what can we say about this? Namely, that the gospel is the fuel for good works. You see, prior to salvation, according to Paul, you are not doing good works. Indeed, you cannot. It says, we were foolish, disobedient, led astray. You are a slave to your heart, and your heart desires evil continually. And so, uh, going into verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. Do you recognize how beautiful Jesus is? Do you recognize how evil you were prior to Jesus? You know, I think of a story. Uh, we went to Cambodia, uh, I think two years almost now, or it's been two years. Um, and there was an interesting time when uh, leaving the main ministry spot that we were at for most of one week and then heading into the airport area just to hang out, we stopped by a pastor's house that one of our members knew. And we sat there and we talked with him and we had heard a lot of great things about this pastor. And so uh, being very student, student-like-minded, we want to learn from him. And so we asked him, you know, tell us your testimony. Tell us, tell us what how the Lord saved you, especially being in Cambodia. It's, it's, it's so vastly not Christian at all. And so he starts to explain, and he has a translator there, and maybe something got lost in translation, but as he begins to explain his conversion, he says, well, you know, there was a time where we needed some money, and we didn't have the money. We didn't know where the money was going to come from. Excuse me. And... We prayed to God, and we prayed, and we prayed, and then we received the money. And that was his conversion story, and I, I thought it was very odd, uh, very fascinating. Um, and again, maybe something lost in translation there, but um, from that alone, that pastor had a fundamental misunderstanding of his relationship to God and what God was there to do. We went to another pastor, um, I think the next day, and we asked him the same question. And they seemingly on the outside were the same. And he said, uh, well, before Jesus, I was a gangster. I was a gangster, and I used to go out um, and part of this gang and drink and these things. And he, he went into depth about it, and, and then he talked about Jesus and how his life changed and how his, his community changed and how his family saw him differently and how, how God was using him. And I said, there's a striking contrast here between someone who recognizes their life prior to Jesus and someone who does not, someone who doesn't understand how sinful they are. And so it was a really interesting moment. I say that to say that, again, what was your life before Christ? Too often, I think it's very uh, 
helpful to think through what life was like prior to Jesus Christ, especially if you've been a Christian for so long. Especially if you think to yourself, I'm beginning to lose a sense of flavor for this Christian thing. Do you recognize how great your sin was when Christ saved you, when the goodness and loving kindness of God, uh, your Savior, appeared? Literally, the, the word there for loving kindness is philanthropy. God was gracious to you. He was willing to love you and pour out much upon you. Verse 5 says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Do you know this? That you did not convince God to save you? Did you know that there was nothing about you that God said, hey, I want to save that person because look how great he or she is. In fact, everything about your life said the opposite. According to the scriptures, you could have not done anything to manipulate God to save you. In fact, he chose to save you because he chose to have mercy. You deserve his judgment. He decided to show mercy on you. Too much, too often, we, we assume that God owes us. God, I've been a Christian for 10 years, 15 years. Where, where is my blessing? Where is my reward? And indeed, if you did not deserve salvation to begin with, you do not deserve it now. And so, God has chosen to have mercy on you. Uh, it says, verse 6, Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Justified by his grace. That is that God looked at you, sinful person, sinful being, and said, you are righteous. You are good. You are perfect. Even though your life said the opposite. He justified you by his grace. Grace meaning a gift you do not deserve. He chose to have mercy so that you can become an heir according to the hope of eternal life. Do you realize the beauty and joy that is coming for us who believe? Have you thought deeply and long and wonderfully about what is coming for us who are in Christ? I don't know, but it's very great blessing for myself and my own soul. When I turn to Revelation, I just read the last two chapters straight through. No pause, just read it straight through. It's, it is a beautiful thing to meditate on, to think that this life and all of its terrible, tragic, sinful badness will be done away with, that Christ will appear and come to save us, that he will be our treasure, that we will have fullness of joy. There will be no more tears. There will be no more death. It will be a beautiful thing. If you are in Christ, that is your inheritance. You are an heir to that promise, guaranteed the hope of eternal life. Now, this whole section is fascinating because it's mixing in several things to the question, how is it that a person is saved? And when we answer that question, depending on which side you fall on, you can answer and emphasize one section more than the other. And let me be clear that both are needed. And what I'm getting at is this. To answer the question, how is a person saved? You cannot answer that question apart from the historical narrative of Jesus Christ, the person. Here it is, that we believe 
as Orthodox Christians that Christ is God made in the flesh, a Middle Eastern man, and came to live perfectly to satisfy every righteous deed needed, every good work needed to be well-pleasing in God's sight, and died to satisfy God's wrath, God's anger, God's justice. That's the historical narrative. He resurrected three days later and ascended into heaven. That's the answer to the question, how is a person saved? Because Jesus Christ, the Lord, died on the cross for sins. It is the beauty, it is the majesty, it is the mystery of God revealed. At the same time, the other side of the question, how is a person saved? Uh, You get theological. How? Well, you repent from your sins. We talked about this. You recognize your state of being and how much you are in need of a savior. Too often people don't think of Christ as precious because they don't recognize how great their need is. And the moment you recognize your need, you say, what a beautiful event in history. And in believing that that satisfies God's justice, you are saved. And so there's two answers to the question. How is a person saved? Because Jesus Christ died. How is a person saved? Because I've repented and believed in that Jesus. And so if that won't get you going for good works, there is nothing else that will. The gospel is the fuel for good works. We talked about submission to authority. How do you plan to live a life like that apart from the gospel? You cannot. The gospel is the fuel that drives us to want to live lives uh, pleasing to him, to love our neighbor as ourself. Verse 8 says, This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. The saying is trustworthy. The gospel is trustworthy. Insist on these things. Why is he going so long on this gospel? Because I am insisting on these things. Elders, insist on these things. City group leaders, insist on these things. Husbands, leaders in your home, insist on these things. It is the gospel that drives us to love God and our neighbor, to be Uh, workers of good works insist on these things so that we who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Be careful to devote yourself to good works. Study your life. Recognize where, hey, I'm really good at this area, but maybe I can improve here. Maybe my life is kind of like, uh, I have a mango tree. And so, uh, yeah, and uh, I have a relationship of hate and love for this mango tree because um, it's a beautiful tree. It has lots of good mangoes during the season. Uh, but occasionally, I'll see one in the tree. I'll be like, I'm going to grab that one. I get my little cutting thing. Um, and so I cut the mango off. And when I turn it, the other side's been eaten. I don't know what's eating them, whether it's like an iguana, because I got a lot of monkeys. I mean, a lot of animals. And so they eat things. Um, and so it's, it's really deceiving. When you turn the mango, it's been eaten away at, and so uh, may it not be the same of your life, that you were very good in this area, but you lacked something in this other area. Lives devoted to good works in all areas, devoted to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. 
And so now we tra- transition to verse 9, uh, a new idea here. Uh, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. What, what's Paul getting at here? And this is what we may say. Avoid distortions of the gospel which do not fuel us for good works. Avoid distortions. Here you have a, a, a section of, of Jewish uh, people in the island of Crete where Titus is, and they're, they're bringing up all these things that are putting the gospel on the peripheral and they're becoming the central thing. My charge is to avoid those things that are distorting the gospel. The gospel is centered and its implications are, are great and they go vast and beyond, but avoid those things that want to take first place other than the implications of said gospel. So an example, um, I was raised Seventh-day Adventist uh, from the moment I was born to uh, about 18 years old until I became an adult. Uh, I was raised Seventh-day Adventist. Now in the Seventh-day Adventist world and mind, if you're truly devout, uh, there's something that takes precedence before all things. And it's this, the Seventh-day Sabbath, a, a, a law um, in the commandments of God that takes center place. If you talk to a Seventh-day Adventist, they are going to talk to you about the Seventh-day Sabbath. It is the go-to for them. The issue with that is that they place such an emphasis on the Sabbath that it distorts the central theme of the scriptures, namely relationship with God, the gospel. We do not want to be like that. We want to avoid those things that uh, are distortions of the gospel. We want to be fully committed to God's gospel. We could entertain people, maybe have a conversation, but point them ultimately to the gospel. But once a person is committed to breaking up the church, the person is committed to not a centered life in the gospel, it gets messy, you go into discipline, and that person does not understand fundamentally uh, their responsibility to the church. And so avoid distortions of the gospel which do not fuel us for good works. Again, I want to make a point. There are necessary divisions and there are unnecessary divisions. The moment we disagree upon the gospel, that is a necessary division because the gospel is a non-negotiable. We will not debate about the gospel, the beautiful message of salvation. We will be one, united together under the gospel. But there are certain things in scripture, both and in life, that we can agree to disagree, and that's okay. And so uh, there are necessary divisions and unnecessary ones. So then we get to the last section, verse 12. When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. 
Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. I've decided, I know that we did the entire chapter, I've decided to include that last part because I think it's fascinating. I think it's fascinating. Uh, we often kind of just skim over those little parts where it gets um, historic and seems to be no value, but really, in reading that, what we see is that good works ultimately lead to the mission of God. That good works is the direction pointed to God's mission, that we are called to be a light to the people, to spread the gospel, the good news of salvation to others, and we see that here. You see how Paul sends away Titus, but is putting two more in place. We see that he is telling them to see that they lack nothing, to be fully equipped. My question to you is, how are you furthering the mission of God? How are you enabling others to go far and vast beyond in your home, in your city, in your country, around the world, to engage in the mission of God? This is good works, and God has called us to do them. A life that is pleasing in his sight, a life that is submitted to authority, a life that loves my neighbor as myself. This is the life God has called us to live. Ultimately, God has called us who have believed the gospel to devote ourselves to every kind of good work. This is Titus chapter 3. And uh, I pray that we would know what it means to, to examine our lives, to have every moment of every day seeking to be a blessing to others. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you, Lord, that you've transformed our lives to, to be uh, people dedicated and devoted to good works. God, would we live lives pleasing to you? Would you transform us and continue to transform us till we are pleasing in your sight? Thank you, Lord, for the cross. Thank you, Lord, for the body. We pray this in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen.